Hey, just quick before we get started, when you download the podcast, please can you make sure you like and share it because it helps with all those strange algorithm type things that nobody really understands. Thanks, guys. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Hadaway and welcome to this, the ARC 360 podcast in association with our corporate partners, BASF, BMS, CAPS, Copart, Emacs, Integral, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Merca, Nationwide Vehicle Recovery Assistance, S&G Response and Sherwin-Williams Automotive Finishes, as well as our partners Aztec, the Green Parts Specialists, Indasa and the Innovation Group. So on this week's podcast, we talk to Paul Cunningham, where in his usual light-hearted manner, he explains how a motorbike injury was the catalyst behind his journey to his current role as commercial director at Fix Auto Dagenham. During our chat, Paul talks with great pride at how the driven and focused culture developed by the business over the years has shone through, particularly in recent times as the business faced COVID-19 head-on. And he goes into detail about why joining Fix Auto UK from the outset and being the network's first UK franchisee was the best move his business ever made. Oh, he also gives ARC 360 a little exclusive with plans to take over another repair centre and what that might mean for his existing team. On a lighter note, Paul jokes about his online status as a legend and his dreams of riding in the greatest cycle race of them all, the Tour de France. Please note, this podcast was recorded pre the lockdown statement on the 31st of October. All right, so thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. Hope you're well, buddy. Yeah, I'm really good, mate. I'm really good. Thanks for the invite. I'm excited to chat with you again. It feels like only last week we were speaking. Oh, it was actually, wasn't it? <laughs> Funny you should say that. Uh, <laughs> starring appearance on the webinar, you see, and the audience, you know, the crowd says they want more. So what do we do? We oblige and we catch up with you on a podcast. So the stage is all yours today, mate. First and foremost, let's kind of set the scene. And if you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your career path, and of course, um, your newly found legend status, which not many will know about out there at the moment. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I'm Paul Cunningham, obviously, you know me, um, some may not. I'm the commercial director at Fix Auto Dagenham. Fix Auto Dagenham's uh, an independent body shop, part of the Fix Auto network, but ultimately an independent body shop down on the east end of London, bordering with Essex, if you like. From the very start, I kind of fell into the body shop world. I used to, uh, and I still got a passion for motorbikes, but I used to ride motorbikes and I had quite a substantial accident and uh, smashed my knee up. I was in a recovery period for quite some time. And one of my colleagues, if you like, through life was working for AJC Wilson, as it was known then. I'll tell you a bit more about that. I needed to do a lot of, I suppose, rehabilitation and within those sort of times of hard rehabilitation I just thought I'd get out back in the road I was bored at home if you like as you can imagine over a period of four or five years of rehabilitation so in between those I joined AJC and started to build a relationship with Alf, Janice and Chris who were the um, owners at the time once I got stronger and stronger with my knee and I've returned to fitness I, I kind of got the culture of the business and I understood what they were trying to do and, and I thought it was really exciting so I took the jump and joined full-time and started training I, I worked out in the customer service area uh, as a driver as customer service working in the reception and slowly but surely I say slowly but surely but quite quickly I, I got my feet under the door and moved into team leader at the front line I then I've always been a bit ambitious and I was never going to sit on hand. So I kept pushing and pushing. And eventually Jeff, who was the body shop manager at the time, I, I convinced him to take me on as a trainee VDA. And I 
become a VDA for the business and slowly but surely learn more and more about the, the, the rest of the business, the emotional side of the business, the people management and so on and so forth and fell into an acting body shop manager role once he, he got ill, unfortunately. And I fell into that role just simply because I'd worked with him so closely for quite some time. Him, him and Alf, if I'm honest. Uh, a bit less so in those early days with Chris, but that come a bit later. And ultimately managed to become the body shop manager, probably around 2005. So within two or three years, I was body shop manager. I kept pushing, obviously. The AJC was Alf, Janice and Chris, as you well know. Um, a lot of people may not know. They just know the Fix Auto brand or the Fix Auto Dagnan brand. But prior to that, it was AJC Wilson. And the AJC was Alf, Janice and Chris. Janice decided to retire and that sort of opened an opportunity for me to buy in. Alf and Chris always had a vision of their exit plans. For some reason, Chris is still here. I'm not sure how that works. But <laughs> as you well know, Alfie and, Alfie and Janice are gone now. And Neil and I got the opportunity to buy in. We did buy in. We become directors. And yeah, just moved forward from the business from there. 2008, I think that was when we first bought in. So we're 12 years in now and the business has grown, as you've seen over the years, Mark. The business first moved into the Fix Auto world. Fix Auto came over from Canada. They approached us. I think we'd been quite successful with awards and the business had sort of grown quite quickly at a stage. And Chris was making waves on the... Uh, BSI route, if you like, getting PAS 125 up and running. And they approached Chris and Alf and told them what they wanted to do. They wanted to build a network in the UK. He did consult with us. It was ultimately Chris and Alf's decision at the time because it was 2005. I was body shop manager, but I wasn't an owner at the time. That decision was taken that we believed in the sort of, I don't know, we believed in what they were trying to do. We knew that body shops were going to be harder and harder to engage with large insurers. They were fed up with micromanaging 300 body shops. It, it seemed like the right thing for uh, insurer clients to contact one supplier, one supply chain. We, we've seen it with Nationwide, you've seen it with Fix Auto, you've seen it with the Visions of This World. It ultimately came true. So the business grew. Neil and I have got lots of energy, obviously a little bit more than uh, Alf and Chris had at the time, and we was just eager to keep moving. So we pushed and pushed. I think 2015, we bought a second site down in Raynham. I think the following year, we'd outgrown that site. So we bought the site next door to it as well. We still call it site two, but there's three sites now. We bought three units. And yeah, we just keep pushing and pushing. We've grown the team to 40 plus now. There's over 40 staff members. I think when we joined, there was probably half that. So we've doubled it in the time Neil and I have been involved. We're on the cusp of another acquisition. So pretty much that's mine and the fixed auto journey, really, in, in short. Well, you summed it up remarkably um, succinctly there. I know there's uh, plenty more to it and there's been uh, ups and downs along the way, as is always the case. And I love the way you, you know, you talk about the people side of the business before anything else. So that's that's fascinating. And we'll, we'll pick up on that as we go. Now, you're not escaping the newfound legend status. Come on, just give us an insight. You're keen on your bike at the moment. And I keep noticing on Strava every day, you seem to get a new legend status. <laughs> yeah, well... As you know, it's two wheels for me. I love motorbikes. So I obviously damaged myself on one some years back. My wife found that she wasn't that enamored with me ragging motorbikes around as much. I still got bikes, which I'll come into. I've got a couple of motorbikes um, and I still ride them, but very, very rarely in comparison to what I used to ride them. But part of my physio was on a static bike. And as you can imagine, because I've done my knee, I've done the ligaments in my knee. A bit like one of my other passions, Virgil van Dyke at the moment from Liverpool. He's done his ACL. I've done, I did that times four actually I did all four ligaments 
in the knee. So the recovery plan was to ride bikes and just sitting there riding a bike in a shed, if you like, or in your back room is pretty boring. We've probably all done it at some point and exercise bikes don't work. So I started to ride push bikes. And along with Chris, Chris had already been riding push bikes. So probably for the last year, I've been, one of my passions is to keep fit and to keep my knee strong by by riding a road bike. So I do quite a lot of mileage, as you have seen following me on Strava. And I ride to and from work as much as I can. They don't always work because, as you know, you're out and about. Sometimes you need your car. Sometimes it's bucketing down the rain or there's ice on the roads. But as much as I can, I try and ride, I try and ride to work. And in doing so, for some reason, um, Strava's counted that I've, got, I've done a lot of a certain segment. And uh, I think the segment was called, well, the most recent one was called Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> so I don't know whether they're alluding to my um, lack of fitness or, or or a bulge somewhere else, but ultimately I've done the same segment over and over again for the last 90 days and become the person that's done it the most. So it's either some back street that no one else is riding or, or, or yeah, I'm just busy on the push bike lately. You go, we'll leave that one where it is. Uh, we'll let people read into that what they will and decide what their version of that Battle of the Bulge is. But there we go. Anyway, so <laughs> Fix Auto Dagenham, you, you were the very first Fix Auto UK franchisee, as you've kind of just alluded to. So tell us a little bit more about sort of that journey, if you like. If early adopters, you came on board and, and obviously, you know, still still part of the network, still very much part of the network and, and the hub of the network now. Yeah, like I said previously, we it, it felt like a natural progression for us. We'd been, like I said, quite successful. We'd won a few awards and our profile has, was quite high as AJC Wilson Body Shop back in those days. It was 2005, actually. And we were approached by the, the, the owners at that time fix auto and they came across and they outlined they outlined what they wanted to do and, and what they wanted to do was build a network and deliver a service that was second to none obviously build a brand and ultimately replicate what they had in canada and the north america the usa so they outlined their view of what it was going to look like and obviously we come away we discussed it we had our own ideas and we had our own marketing plan we had our own business plan actually which entailed some growth we just saw that as a means to an end first and foremost and great idea really when you think I don't know at that time we probably had six or seven major insurance clients or work provision clients and we we knew the pain they were going through we were engaged all the time we'll come back to how much we engage with our clients but we engaged with them all the time and we knew they had a lot of pain now to go around to however many body shops they had on their network and it was becoming obvious to us maybe not at the time it was, we still took a chance but it was becoming obvious to us that large work providers wanted an easier way they wanted some extra value in what where their proposition was and it probably wasn't visiting 150 to 300 body shops around the country and signing single contracts with them having arm wrestles and negotiations about this that and the other and all of the pain that goes with that so we knew that that was coming we felt like just like we know technology is coming now, but at that time we felt it was coming. We still took a chance, but we believed in it. And if you believe in something as much as we did at the time, then ultimately with our drive and enthusiasm, it would probably work. Don't get me wrong. It was a bit of a slow journey at first. There were some reasons behind that in terms of the fixed network itself. And there was reasons behind that um, with the people that were running it at the time. And so some of those things changed, but ultimately this, the same goal was still there. 
it just took a little while. But after the, I don't know, three or four years, you've seen the, the momentum that Fix Auto have got now and the success they've got. They're, they're a household name. Even even in retail now, I'd say there was a household name. I talk to people and they, they know Fix Auto. They just do. Branding's fantastic. And we've uh, we've benefited massively. But although we've still got our own clients and we've still got our own marketing plans and we still work to our own ideals, ultimately, we're all independent entrepreneurs so we've all got ideas and we all still run our business with as much autonomy as we probably did previously but what we do get with fix is a lot of a lot of help and a lot of support and a lot of resources they do a lot of things for the network and we can concentrate on doing some of the things that we want to do as opposed to writing contracts and doing stuff that they help us with so it's been a great journey we we always knew it'd work Ultimately, it was like you put a ball down and you kick it. You don't know where that's going to land, but it, it's landed quite well. We're really pleased with how it's gone, and we just we just keep going. I think I think the network's had a tough year, as has everyone in our industry. But the strength has been in the numbers. You've seen it. We've seen the strength. We have massive benefits from the fact that we can just pick up the phone and talk to a hundred body shops. We can literally ring any one of them, and we all share best practice. And we knew that it wasn't about work provision from us. I've not mentioned that once in our whole conversation. I know some people think, well, I'll join Fix and we'll get work provision, or I'll join Vision and we'll get work provision. It wasn't about that. It was about being that community. It's about sharing best practice, and it was about having the strength of one voice as opposed to competing with another 150 body shops. We now don't compete with, well, the size of the network, 100 body shops. We just share best practice and quite easily we can pick up the phone and say, I've got this little drama, this little problem. How do you deal with that? What do you do? And it's great. The results from that alone has been a major, major benefit. And I know you guys are, you know, massively respected amongst the Fix Auto Network. And, you know, as you say, that sharing best practice, I think that's um, been very evident in, in recent months during the pandemic from, from both of the names you mentioned there, you know, Fix, Vision, as well as others, really. So it's um, it's certainly proved beneficial. And, and again, beyond that, it's, it's gone beyond kind of the network itself. You know, Ian was on the webinar a few times where he was just sharing information with, with the industry as a whole. And I think that was um, gratefully received by all and sundry. So, uh, so great stuff and great insight there. So, you know, it's... It's fair to say, leading us on nicely, 2020 has been a, a rocky road, but you guys have kind of, you know, again, as we discussed on the webinar a couple of weeks ago, taken the opportunity to extract some of the positives and, and that's, you know, the kind of people you are. You don't stop moving, you keep going ahead and you do what you can, take care of your people, as you've told us. So just tell us a little bit more about what you have been up to. Yeah, well, I think COVID was a big shock to everyone. We all kind of saw it coming. We had a little bit of warning before the lockdown, obviously, throughout the early part of March and February. We saw what was happening around the world. Who knew there was going to be a lockdown? Who knew in January what was going to happen? It was a massive shock for the system. But our business plan and our marketing plans and, and, and everything we've put in place was always was always quite sturdy. I, I, I say that without no shame. I think we've, we've worked hard and we, we plan all the time and, and in doing so we had at least part of a plan no one knew this was coming so we didn't have a, a covid plan what we're going to do if covid comes or we get locked down we didn't have that but what we did know is that we'd we'd done enough in the past and we had a journey and let's try and stay on track as much as we could and follow that journey the lockdown hit us we'd already engaged with our clients and our customers and our staff we'd been engaged with them constantly on the lead up to that lockdown and when it did actually come yeah, there was a lot of eyes open and wide-eyed, sort of what we're going to do, what we're going to do. 
we already had a plan. We'd spoken to our customers and our clients. They expressed that they still had a need. There was key workers, I think. It's probably the easiest way to express it. There was key workers. We spoke to our staff. Some of them were really nervous and really anxious and just wanted to lock themselves away, as you'd expect. The whole spectrum of feelings that came across the business was exactly the same as the whole spectrum of feelings you see out there now. Some people are really scared still. Some people want to get back on with life. Some people don't want to wear masks. It's just different views everywhere. So through engagement and communication, we decided that we'd stay open with a select few, those that wanted to stay with us and carry on working. And we furloughed probably, yeah, circa 50, 60% of our staff and kept working. Now, like I said, we, we meet every Monday. We meet, well, we meet, we met more than that during COVID. Let's be honest. We was, we was chasing our towels a little bit and we was all much closer together outside of our comfort zones. What we did do was we committed the age-old thing that we wanted to protect our staff. It's just as simple as that. They'd, some of them have spent years and years with us, over 10 years, 20 years with us. And they'd got us to where we where we were. They've got us to the profile we've got. They're, they're, they're the ones that, that have been the front of our business, if you like, when it comes to the customers, when it comes to fixing the car. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be where we were. So massive drive. I think that sat at the top of every plan we had was how quickly can we get back the staff? How quickly can we get those guys back into jobs, back into a, a, a sense of security and a sense of well-being? There's enough going on in their lives and all the drama and the worry about their families and so on. Could we give them the confidence to come back and, and see that they was in the right place working for Fix Auto Dagenham? So we made some decisions. We widened our approach. We contacted our clients. We, we said to them, what do you need? The ultimate thing was that's what you do with your customers. You understand your customers' needs and then try and tailor it to it. Obviously, we had the, our own drivers, which were to get the staff back. But ultimately, there, there was so much panic. A lot of body shops closed, as you well know. A large chunk of body shops just closed. Everyone panicked. They took it for what it was and said, okay, let's close. Some, they had their own reasons. The reasons I respect everyone's reasons. But what that did was left some white spots for insurers and the insurers explained that they needed some help in certain areas we widened our, our reach that gave us the opportunity to give some staff a, a call and get them back and say look this is what we need the business is going to stretch we're going to be doing lots of driving lots of picking up cars lots of things that we don't normally do are you prepared to do some of that and, and I think the culture we'd built over the years with our staff just shone it just came through there all the work we'd put in to build a culture in our business of of teamwork and and fighting for the main calls the big calls which was all of your team members we had lots of them um oh, I say lots of them but virtually all of them say yeah i'll come back and do whatever you want let's just secure what we've got protect everyone we're going to come out of this no one knew how long it'd take we all thought this was going to be a couple of months and then we'd be back to normal but the point was body shops running on the margins we run on can't sustain for that long they can't sustain for that long without a steady income. And okay, we had the, the benefits of some of some of the things that Rishi Sunak put in place. They, they helped. But ultimately, the key was let's spread our reach. We'll travel all over the place. We'll support our customers now while they desperately need us because they'd been left high and dry in some places, in certain areas. That was one of our tactics. The second tactic was to um, pick up that marketing plan and just take some opportunities. Let's be honest. There was, there was lots of opportunities in place for us to show what we can actually do because the, the regular body shops were closed. As harsh as it sounds, we had to make some decisions and one of them was to keep approaching the people we'd been farming, using a marketing term, which is quite awful, but we was farming clients for, for months and months. We called on some of them, some opportunities opened up and it gave us a bit of a head start on the rest of the body shop world, if I'm honest. That's all I can say. It gave us a bit of a head start. Don't get me wrong, the culture we'd driven in our staff helped massively because... If we didn't have that culture in, in there, I think 
we would have seen more staff saying or using excuses not to come back to work. Yeah, I'm getting paid. Why? What? I'm all right. My feet are up. I'm watching daytime TV. We know. We all know how good that is. I'm going to stay at home. But they didn't. They they really dug in. They wanted to come back, and they couldn't come back soon enough. And some of the questions and the, and the, the words were always, when is so-and-so coming back? They're looking out for their mates. When are we getting back so-and-so? When are we getting back John? When are we getting back other people in their team? So it's fantastic. That that was just, yeah, put, puts the ears on the back of my neck up now. It just gives you goosebumps thinking about the response that we had. And yeah, I, I think ultimately that's, that's why we were so successful. Always engage and we always communicate and we try and be as transparent as possible. And we were rewarded for that when we most needed it. And yeah, we're still getting that now because we've currently got everyone back and we've literally just bought two more members of staff on so we're expanding in that respect we're expanding in terms of volumes and, and yeah hopefully we can keep growing our team and growing the staff within the team emotionally and technically to keep that journey going covid's been absolutely a kick in the stomach for everyone and, and we've just done our best and we can take some positives out of it don't get me wrong there's loads of negatives we know what the negatives are they're all over the news every single day i think what i read today about belgium and the trouble they're in at the moment is just heartbreaking they're, they're going to be in a bit of a, a bit of a mess in a couple of weeks if something drastic doesn't happen yeah we just keep keep one eye on that much as we can keep the other eye on our journey and what our ultimate goal is and that's to keep our staff in in jobs keep our staff secure throughout all of this and to stay on our path and hopefully we can carry on doing that. We don't know what's around the corner. Oh, well, good on you. And, you know, hats off. And it, it's clear that people are what you are centred on uh, as a business. And that comes across in droves, really. Everything you say relates back to your team, your people. So, you know, in, in a world where we do talk about so many other things, everything else, you know, whether that be technical in our industry, whether it be relationship based, whether it be volume based, you name it, there's an awful lot of things in our industry that we often focus on. How important do you think people and cultures are in achieving, you know, just success, the right things within a business? Is it kind of almost the be all and end all in a way for success? Well, for us and for me personally, I'm not overstretching by saying by using that term, the be all and end all. I think everything's driven through that. Don't get me wrong, we've expanded, we've bought properties and we've bought the right properties and we've changed processes in the business and we've been very successful at that. And we've introduced some processes like Lean, you, you probably know from judging the awards over the years and so on. We, we was very early adopters of Lean processes. I can't say enough how much that improved our business at that, that stage. It was like a, a wall. It was in journeys with business, you have walls in front of you all the time, growth walls. I suppose you've done an MBA in business, you probably know all of these cliches and terms, but you get to a place where you need to invest. There's a wall in front of you and you need to invest somehow. And sometimes that's people investment. And sometimes it's process investment and sometimes it's physical capacity. You might buy a building. Um, and we've hit those barriers lots of times. And, and when I look back at the journey of the business, or at least since I've been in it, those walls, every time we've hit one of those walls, um, it's generally been about people and investment in people. And that's what's got us over it. Don't get me wrong, there was the, there was the lean. Um, I can count that on one finger, to be honest. But other things around developing out key man risk is a, is a, is a barrier. 
you get two or three people off on a small business. When we were smaller, you're in trouble. So you start to learn that you need to multi-skill people. You need to have those, those things in place. But generally, every wall that I've hit when, it, when it's come to that business growth where you have to reinvest, it's, it's been a people thing. And, and I've been lucky. I say lucky. I've, I've, we've built the culture of transparency and communication. And we've got people on board. And we've got staff members that... I'd like to say, whether they say it to my face or not, or what they say behind my back, but I'd like to say enjoy it here because they stay. And, and, and that's a good test of whether people enjoy working for you is if, is if they stay. And I, I truly believe that you give someone a goal and they've got a reason to stay. And usually that goal is, is some sort of investment in them, some sort of growth for them, whatever it be. As long as they've got a goal in front of them, then so be it, they'll be okay. So that's why I'll say the culture thing and the people thing for me is always going to be at the forefront of my mind. If someone's asked me why I've been successful, it's because I've got a lot of energy to spend on my people. It's just as simple as that. Whether you say, use a ladder at the bottom rung, an apprentice that's just joined the business, I'll make sure that they're progressing and I'll make sure they're getting the support they need, whether it be from me directly or whether it be from the, the layers of hierarchy that I've got in the business, all the way up to our management team. And the management team, if I don't give them the tools to be able to manage correctly, I don't give them the tools to be innovative, I don't help them to make decisions or give them the autonomy to make decisions and grow, then it don't matter how many, I don't know, expensive booths you buy or technology you buy or investment you make to, I don't know, your building. It don't matter how much of that you do. You, you, you can have the shiniest, brightest, sparkliest body shop in the world. Okay, that looks nice on the first day that the technician comes and works and thinks, oh, this is lovely. I've got heating. I've got, I'm not fixing cars in puddles and I've got a ramp to myself. Oh, yeah, okay, we've got that. But those things soon wear out. After three or four months, if you've got a culture that's not very helpful, not very nice, you'll still see the staff thinking, oh, yeah, well, it's all lovely and they're shiny, but yeah, I'm off because you ain't treating me like that or you're not leaving me stuck in a dead-end role that I've got bigger plans for. And most people have got bigger plans, don't get me wrong. One or two don't. They, they're happy to be a soldier, if you use that analogy, but most want to be lieutenants and captains. They want, they want to strive. They want to, they've got the same ambitions and energy and enthusiasm to grow themselves. And if they haven't, all you generally have to do is unlock that door. You show them a little bit of growth and bang, they're off. They're, they're going. And, and, and that's why, for me, if I don't do that and you don't get that from the staff, then how do you progress? How do you get buy-in for that new client that's a little bit weird? I don't know. It might be a, a limousine company, slightly strange. It might be a tipper company, something just slightly out of the normal. They're used to fixing cars coming through that production line, and then all of a sudden you give them something that's a little bit weird. Um, how do you get that buy-in when you make changes like that or when you introduce weird and wonderful things that are outside their comfort zone? The only way you're going to get that is you're going to teach people to or want people to have the right attitudes and the right um, reasons in their mind, which is generally, I want to grow and I want to invest in this business as much as they're investing in me. Like you said, I think it really is the be all and end all. We wouldn't get away with not having a booth. I get that. But for me, that's standard stuff. That's just, you just, you ain't got a choice. You've got to do that. We've got a choice whether we build a really good culture in our business and we've got a choice whether we grow the staff. We can have a, the door swinging with people coming in and out all the time and, and you get no consistency and you'll get no they just won't we, you think our staff are the people that present our business whether they be frontline staff presenting our business in terms of the customer and face to face that's the impression the customer gets is that person that's delivering delivering their car back or booking their car in or it might be the person that's fixing the car and not doing it very well because they don't care 
you get that growth and give them those those uh, opportunities and they'll want to give back and that's what we experienced 10 minutes ago when I spoke about a COVID journey when they wanted to come back and they were all worried about their colleagues um, and that's where that's come from so yeah be all and end all is a really good really good place to go back to where we started this conversation sounds like a great place to be my friend you know hats off to yourself and, and Neil and, and Chris and you know the rest of the team hierarchy over the years for developing that culture now we're at about the midway uh, stage so uh, we're going to encourage people to well because it's a bit of a fitness theme do a few press-ups or do a few star jumps or something, freshen up, and we'll be back with you very shortly. So a huge thank you to our corporate partners, BASF, BMS, CAPS, Copart, Emacs, Integral, Enterprise, Rent-A-Car, Merca, Nationwide Vehicle Recovery Assistance, S&G Response, and Sherwin-Williams Automotive Finishes, as well as our partners, Aztec, the Green Part Specialists, and DASA, and the Innovation Group. Enjoy the second half of this podcast. All right, so welcome back. Hope everyone's invigorated and uh, on their toes again, ready for more with Paul Cunningham here from Fix Auto Dagenham. So we've just been speaking about people and you kind of mentioned the word apprentices and I know you are a very keen supporter of apprenticeships and getting people involved in the industry. You've seen the development or been close to the development of auto rays over the years with obviously Chris's involvement there. In your eyes, what does an ideal candidate look like? Another goalpost moving in terms of the audience we're looking to engage with? Firstly, yeah, you're right. We've been involved with the apprenticeship schemes for quite some time. I think you know this, some may not. In our hierarchy, we've got lots of people in the business that have started as apprenticeships. And going back to some of the growth discussions we had earlier, we've come all the way through the business. And Neil's a great example. Most people know Neil Parker. He's the operations and finance director at Fix Auto Dagenham. He started in the business as an MET apprentice. So he's a technician in the workshop. And his journey was to come all the way through the business and obviously join me in buying in. By the time he got to a point of EDA and so on, he got an opportunity to buy in when Janice left. And that's a typical example of what we try and do with our staff. Get them at apprenticeship, get them to buy into our culture and grow them through the business and, and the, the, the ceiling is wherever they want it to be. It's up to them how far they want to go and how quickly they want to do it. If they've got the ability and the attitude, then off they go. The door's open for them. And in terms of the ideal person, well, we've spent a lot of time developing our apprenticeship scheme and program or process that we run in our business. And over the years, we've developed relationships with colleges and schools close to us and, and one in particular that does level one body for the youngsters they leave I think it's about two days they do but once they pass their level one we generally have the tutor ringing us up and saying I've got a few candidates do you want to take a look at them and then we get them in and we'll do some work experience with them and we'll do some tests and practical tests and theory tests and and sit down and what we're looking for though that they can use their hands that comes as a given they wouldn't have taken the choice to go and do level one body in a, in a college if they didn't know if they didn't know how to use their hands the ideal candidate for us is someone that comes in shows us enthusiasm really we don't expect that they're going to be able to fix a car on day three of joining us we don't expect that we don't expect they're going to be anywhere near that but what we do look for is is an attitude and an enthusiasm that just hungry if they're hungry I think you mentioned goalposts which i'll come to in a minute that the landscape has changed with people's expectations or youngsters expectations so I, I will agree with that ultimately no one wants to come and work and do a bad job they just need a little bit more guidance and advice our key drivers are what's their attitude what are they like with the team we do psychometric testing at that early age the belbin test with richard belbin developed them years ago and we use them at all levels of our business when we employ and it's part of our employment process and, and that that does 
give us a little bit of insight. Don't get me wrong, they often get it wrong at that age because they don't really know where they are and what they want, but it does help us and it guides us to a point where we can understand what type of learner they are, what type of person they are, and then then we've got the tools then to press further into that and understand whether they're, they're right, whether those tests come out correctly. And once we start pressing into that, we get a real good idea of what their attitudes are like and what their enthusiasm is like and whether they're just sort of going through motions. And that's probably the easiest way. Spending all of that time at the beginning is so much more worthwhile than spending loads and loads of time trying to turn them at too late a date. So the key attributes for me were clearly attitude, teamwork, and whether they've got the hunger and desire, because those three things in a really tough industry, let's be honest, it is tough, especially at that level when they're coming through. If they've got those three things, then generally they're okay. And, and, and using those tools and developing that over the last 20 years, 15 years, has given us loads of wins, really. Our churn rate... Our churn rates increased massively. We don't churn youngsters. I, I, I think the age-old saying is there's a, there's a common thing that the kids nowadays don't know what they want. They don't want a job. They don't want to work. They just want to watch telly and be lazy and so on. No, well, that's just not true. It's just not true at all. Most kids nowadays, they just need a bit more guidance than they used to have. People think they're all entitled and all these words that are currently um, fashionable in the news, just not really true. Don't get me wrong. It's moved a little bit. Kids do want things quicker, um, but that's our society movement. You've got Amazon now, you've got Apple, you've got Spotify, you've got all this technology in front of them that's taught them that, well, I can have it now. I can have it tomorrow. I can, I can, I can order a laptop tomorrow and have it on my desk first thing in the morning. That society thing, yeah, they've changed, but I don't think they've changed in terms of the want to learn and the want to grow. They're still hungry. They're like sponges. And get the attitude. If they've got the right attitude and they've got the right sort of team ethic, they'll fit into my business. If they haven't, then I, I usually steer clear. I suppose it is investing that time up front and understanding. I suppose one of the keys from that is how they learn, how they want to engage, because everyone does that differently. But I suppose as soon as you tap into that, that's when you can really start to turn people on and, and get them fully engaged and embedded within the business. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about work relationships and, and approvals, because you seem to have sort of a great balance or, or mix of work there. And you've already alluded to what we class as kind of traditional clients as well as some what should we say more alternative or, or weird I think was the term you used a bit earlier yeah. but you know so, some out there type work mix so how do you manage it and, and what are your thoughts on specialization in the industry it seems to be you know one of the terms that's been bandied around uh, in recent months and, and time should I say so what are your thoughts there? I think firstly our customer base if you like obviously Everyone knows Fix Auto now. The brand has done its job over the last three or four or five years. That brings us a type of work I think you call traditional. We have large clients, large insurer clients, large accident management clients, and they're signed through the Fix Network and they come through to us. And what that's done, that's given me an opportunity to farm them less, if you like. Oh, don't get me wrong, I, I never take my eye off that ball. And we're always, we're always out pre-COVID. We was out networking and we we're always trying to build those relationships and, and constantly push those buttons. Yeah, ultimately, you do have to have a balance of work is probably the best thing. The, the, the old cliche is all your eggs in one basket now. We've seen countless body shops over the years get caught out by that when one large insurer decides that they're changed to a large client. That takes us all the way back to us talking about Fix Auto and why we joined. We knew that that was going to be attractive for 
large clients. So we try and spread, we try and spread our, our risk with our customer base by making sure that we don't have too much percentage in one client for a start. What that does is that just makes you look sideways. It makes you look forward and it looks back and look around and see what the options are. What, what else is there available? So we've got some manufacturer approvals, which we've harnessed. We've got uh, three or four of those over the year, over the years that we've got and managed to uh, work really well with and, and grow. Most people know manufacturer approvals. If you, you get what you put in, you get out what you put in. If you don't work those, you, you just won't get a lot. Some manufacturers, they've got too much on their plate to worry about body shop work. It's as simple as that. So it's about offering them a solution and, and engaging. And you do that correctly and you, you tend to get work from it. So we've been successful there. Part of our plan is to keep going with that. And that will lead to some specialization in a minute. But we also, the usual channels, I suppose, fleets, Retail work, we're very strong on retail. We make sure we've got a product list that the guys can upsell and bring new clients in. We're, we're good with social media, as you've probably seen. And, and like most body shots, we're no different in that respect. Our marketing plan says we've got to diversify. And if we don't, you're going to find yourself with all your eggs in one basket. And then out of the blue, you're going to find yourself in a tricky situation, scrabbling around for more work because that company's decided to take another route in the way they service their clients. I think for me, it's just about just keeping your options open and, and, and looking at other industries and see how they diversify. What, what are they doing? How can you use some of those ideas into this business? We've tried that and we've, we've been successful in some areas and we haven't in, in others, but it's a matter of if you, as long as you're measuring and you know what, you, what, what energy and efforts you're putting into, you can concentrate on the ones you've been successful with. We've got a client book now that's it's tricky to manage because everyone's got different needs. And when you've got, I don't know, 16 different SLAs for 16 different clients, whether they be large corporate clients or whether they be just around the corner with half a dozen motors, they've got their own special needs. So that, that's tricky in itself, but you need to just process that sort of stuff. If, if you process that and you get it automated as much as possible, then and you look after those clients. We assign client managers and they look after them. They get to know their foibles and they get to know what their needs are. And successfully, we can deliver on that. If it was just me trying to manage every client, then yeah, that's a mind blower, isn't it? You just, you, your brain's like a cupboard. You can only fit too much in it and stuff starts to pop out as you start to squeeze more in. It's as simple as that. So we do, same again. We process it and ultimately that gives our team levels of ownership and growth again so it all ties into our ultimate plan which is to give people a journey and a growth and those they're double bubble for us because we get to manage clients really well and really sort of keep them on and, and we also get team leaders and team members that come out of that growth and learning to manage clients so specialization i know i suppose the big thing now is we've all seen it in the last three four five years the exponential growth in technology is mind-blowing where's that going to take us adas at the moment, it's probably the byword. We've invested. We've had to invest. You would. Is that sustainable over the long term? Not sure. It is now. Can you be all things to all men is probably the, the good term. Can we be all things to all men? Currently, at a push, yes. If things don't change over the next five, six years in terms of profit margins and reinvestment or the ability to reinvest, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a lot of body shops that can be all things to all men. They're going to have to move into specialization. And like I said, we've got three or four manufacturer approvals. That's for us, that's more about keeping on top of technology movements and the way technology is moving, the, the way their, their ADAS is changing, radar, it was LIDAR, it was all those sort of things that are really tricky. What do we do? Do we reinvest? Do we wait? I think we've spent time. We're really lucky. We've got Neil. Neil is very 
wily is probably the best word. And before we invest heavily on stuff that adheres to specialization, he'll look at return of investment. Neil's very sharp at that, and he won't invest in something that's going to take us forever to do, so we don't waste too much money. I think those days are going to end. Those days are getting harder and harder. In the position we're at now with the, with the rates and with the profit margins that are in our business, there's going to come a tipping point where we're not going to be able to afford to invest. And we're going to, and, and body shops are going to make choices. And, and the choices are, where do I invest it? Do I invest it in my people? Do I invest it just constantly in, in equipment? Do I, they're probably not going to. You've seen body shops closing left, right and center. You've seen what's happened to Nationwide. We can all sit here and go, oh yeah, but that was COVID. I don't think it was. I think COVID was just the, the last straw that broke the camel's back. You just can't operate at those margins. So if we can all get into a niche market, that's probably the, the ultimate way to go. But that's easier said than done. Moving to a niche market with 40 stuff you still got you still got to bring enough work in currently yeah we'll just keep plugging away we'll keep using Neil's wily news if you like to um to to work out whether we invest heavily and we'll just keep sharp and keep an eye on the market that's that's, that's all we can do at the moment certainly is a we can do yeah and I like uh, Neil's got a new nickname there obviously so uh, we'll maintain that as we move forward but no, again great insight and I'm sure there's many people in the same boat as you at the moment who are kind of playing that bit of a juggling act in terms of do we invest do we take the plunge do we just hold back for a little while so it's uh, it's interesting to hear certainly is again you, you've mentioned leans so just talk us through some of the sort of neat little initiatives you deploy operationally within the business because I know you've got some smart little things going on there which you know are just kind of not necessarily cost an awful lot of money but it's the way you implement them and, and the way you do them that, that makes them really smart I think it's been a case of having to over the years as you know some people use the term I think I've used it in the past how much meat is on the bone you, you sometimes you have to keep chunking away and introducing efficiencies and efficiencies can be introduced from all sorts of ways from um, process I know we, we consistently look at process we're always looking at process the the automation we have downstream for people to come and put suggestions towards us and to change things has led to loads of things in the past I think one of them Lots of the team have had basic lean training and what that does is it just changes their mindset. And when they're at the coalface, they'll think, well, why are we doing things like this? Why do we do it like that? Why don't we do it this way? But that gives them opportunities to do that. And one of, I suppose one of the things was a change of the layout of the body shop. Someone said to us, well, we're doing all this lean training. Why don't we have a production line type layout? Why are we doing it the way we've always done it? Why are we doing it like that? It just doesn't work like that. You get... Lots of um, negatives that come from that way because you get people cherry picking jobs, you get people taking up free bays and hogging all of those areas. The typical body shop pain that body shop managers have, you don't need free cars in your in your vicinity to make bonus or to, to whatever you're chasing. You don't need that. So a production line introduced into the business with four different lanes so that we didn't get fast jobs stuck in a heavy track lane. And that was introduced. Been massively successful, if I'm honest. It's taken a lot of the noise away from the workshop. What it's done is it's created a, a culture where they're always looking to improve it. Because if you get it wrong at the beginning, it's that age old thing with VDA. If you do the estimate wrong at the beginning, then it comes and bites you later on down the line because it ultimately becomes delayed in some way or you miss something or you, you end up doing rework. So it's reduced the rework massively. We did, we've introduced this well, quite a, a little while ago now and it's, in, it's reduced rework massively. And what it's also done is it's built a culture where people are looking to find the negatives or the, the things that are being done wrong at the beginning of the job so they're, they're now saying well okay they're logging what's going wrong because ultimately if you put something in a production line and it stops somewhere 
you just picture it if it's a mars bar factory and you've got mars bars going along a production line and all of a sudden it, it can't move to the next stage because something's been done wrong usually a big red light with a siren will start flashing and it'll be like why is the production line stops why is everything falling off the end what's going on what's gone wrong and it's built that culture in our team where they now they fix that they're fixing it on their own it's not us now it's not scott it's not the body shop manager pal it's not those guys that are now constantly in there looking for ways to eliminate error and waste and, and things that go wrong the body shop is doing that now they're doing it on their own if they've got that get up and go and that they, they know the effect that they're going to have on the next department so that's a massive one that's gone through that i'm really sort of pleased with that's there now that's not going to move because it's just it's proven and it works there's obviously the, if I go back to people, you say I always go back to people, and I will. Another thing that we've we've learned is to multi-skill the people and job swap. And okay, don't get me wrong, you can't put a, a, a fully qualified accountant in a paint booth and say swap that job. But what we can do is we can put a, a fully qualified accountant out on the front line, meeting and greeting customers and understanding what they're doing. Probably a bad example, but to have that multi-skilled facet throughout the business has been a massive benefit for us, especially during COVID, but even now so, because we don't have bottlenecks. We don't have key man risk. There's always someone that can step into that gap and fill it. Those sort of initiatives, and, and they also give people a really good understanding of why someone's doing things certain ways and they, they just get to know each other better because they're spending more time with them and again it's a multifaceted benefit for a business because we've got a team now that are all spending time with people they wouldn't normally spend a lot of time with because they're locked in their own little office estimating cars and they're locked in the front reception dealing with customers now they're getting closer and they're teaching each other parts of their job or at least the level of their job and they're getting to know people so you're just seeing that you're seeing more smiles around the business and more more people talking to each other when you wouldn't expect those two personalities, if you like, or cultures to, to mix and chat. And it's a, it's a great thing to see. Whether that's initiatives, I don't know, but it, it's been an immense benefit for our business. And I think for them, because they enjoy coming to work. They know more people. It's just more sociable place to be. If it wasn't for wearing masks and washing door handles every five minutes because of COVID, which we have to do, but it is what it is. It sounds like a great place to be. And those kind of things, you know, whether it by uh, be by design or default, they can have massive impacts on, on business and real positive impacts as well. And as you say, if it can almost run itself, what a great place for you, for you guys to be as you, uh, you know, move on and develop the business even further. So what's on the cards uh, next for Fix Auto Dagenham? Is it business as usual or is our business will never be usual? Yeah, I don't think business will ever be usual, mate, especially in these bleeding times. It's not been negative, but I don't, business is always changing. And I think for us, the, the near future is our acquisition. We're about to buy another body shop. We're probably two weeks away from that. So I think we're going to benefit now because Scott, myself and Neil will be out of this business, fix all Dagenham, if you like, and site two, the second site and the third site. We're going to be away from it and we're going to give the team that's in place beneath us, the hierarchy downwards, they've got a great opportunity now to just take a grip of the business and whilst we're missing, show us what they can do. Don't get me wrong, they've been doing that for a long while, but it'll be just for longer periods. So I think my focus, the business focus now will be to go and get ourselves sort of into the new business, build our culture over there, try and replicate to a point what we've done here. 
We've spent 20 years doing that here. We're not going to spend 20 years doing that there. We've made the mistakes here. We've learned the processes. We've learned what, what works and what doesn't. And so that's it for me. I think the next three months is going to be over there, building that culture, getting, getting that team to trust us the way our team trusts us, and getting that team to see what we can offer them personally and what we can offer in terms of the business because they must have had massive anxieties over the last nine months because the business we're buying ultimately was going to close and then covid came along and they've been struggling through covid obviously lots of them on furlough it's kind of prolonged the closing of that business and prolonged them and they, they must have had nine months of i'll say nine months probably seven eight months of anxiety really i imagine being in that place I, I, I hate to be in that place so my role personally is to go over there and get them to trust us and build some trust and build some um, security for them get them to understand it, buy into our thought processes and our, and our operational processes and understand the benefits are going to come both ways because if you don't reward your staff, you don't get the reward back. So that'll be that'll be our focus over the next three, three four months, maybe longer. Super exciting time. I wish you and uh, Neil and the rest of the team every success in doing that and I'm sure it will be a, a success and we'll follow up on that in due course to get the lowdown in what's happening. Thank you very much. That's kind of, if you like, the formal element, Paul, of the uh, of the interview. Now we're on for the quick fire question round. So if you weren't heading up Fix Auto Dagenham right now, you would be... I'd like to think I'd be riding one of the big tours, mate. Maybe Tour of France, preferably the Giro in Italy. It's a beautiful country. I'd be one of them. But realistically, if I hadn't joined Fix in the early days, I think my passion was always motorbikes back then. I probably would have been fixing design, doing something around motorbikes. I love motorbikes. Yeah, that's probably where my journey would have gone if I hadn't have had that disastrous accident, I suppose. <laughs> which, let's be honest, it's, it's taken me down a new route, which I love. And sometimes you think, well, it's probably a good thing that's happened. We'll have to check out the motorbikes next time we talk. Best bit of business advice you've ever heard, seen or received? Wow, loads. So I've done some, I've done a lot of training over the years in terms of business training and, and understanding how to grow businesses and so on. So I've, I've heard lots of, of uh, cliches and lots of, lots of sayings, but typically with the people thing, I think someone said to me, treat people how you want to be treated. I've done that and we do that as a business and that has come back tenfold over the years. So Treat people where you want to be treated, probably in life, not just in business. If you treat people that way, I think our, um, our world would be a nicer place and it'd be a more enjoyable place. So, yeah. Sound advice, sound advice. Self-driving vehicles for you, yes or no and why? I think yes. The reason I say yes, I think they're a way off. I think everything you read, we all read stuff. Everything you read says they're about 20 years away, maybe two decades away before they're fully autonomous. But I say yes, because it's an immovable object, mate. It's going to happen. We're seeing it. There's some trials and tribulations and there's some things to get through at the moment. Obviously, the, uh, the technology is not quite there and the infrastructure is definitely not there, but they'll get through those. I think they'll get through those. So yes, in the fact that it's going to happen. And yes, I quite like to see myself with my feet up in a car with no driver and just just doing what I'm doing on the way to work. It'd be quite nice, wouldn't it? You could be watching one of the Grand Tours rather than cycling those Strava segments. <laughs> not, not sure how good it'll be for business, if I'm brutally honest, but it'll take some time. I think I'll be well and truly retired before it affects uh, us and probably the next generation below me. So from an from a unselfish point of view, yeah, it, it won't affect them either. It will be a very different, a very different world. That's that's all we can say. Paul Cunningham, it's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
and I will uh, no doubt catch up with you soon. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, mate. So there you have it. Great to catch up with Paul, as always. Uh, always find him upbeat, entertaining. Um, but at the same time, you obviously see how driven himself, Neil, Chris, and the rest of the team there are at Fix Auto Dagenham, and we wish them every success for the future. Great plans afoot, and obviously, like most, just trying to navigate their way through everything at this current moment in time. Huge thank you, as always, to our corporate partners, BASF, BMS, CAPS, Copart, Emacs, Integral, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Merca, Nationwide Vehicle Recovery Assistance, S&G Response, and Sherwin-Williams Automotive Finishes, as well as our partners, Aztec, the Green Parts Specialists in DASA, and the Innovation Group. This has been the ARC360 Podcast. Take care of yourselves, and we look forward to catching up with you all again soon.